0: Hey, rockheads, stop being blockheads and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 580 with guest Glenn Block, recorded live Sunday, June 27, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, EnRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of active reports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now the man whose personality object has an opacity property value of zero. Carl Franklin. <laughs>
1: And we're back. We're at the Dotnet Rocks Live Weekend, and uh, of course, live shows have their excitement, and Carl is busy firefighting in the other room. Not a fire, but a technical issue, so I'm getting to fly solo for a little while at least. Maybe he'll be back over before the show is over. But I got Glenn Block on the line with us. Welcome to the Live Weekend, my friend.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm excited about this. You know, it's really funny because I thought it was a month ago. And like I was scrambling one weekend and telling my wife, like, you got to get, I got to, I got to have this time because I got to be on this show. It's this weekend. And then suddenly I realized, I'm like, wait a minute, it's not for a month. So I'm happy for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Glenn Block movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I, I've had that experience where I showed up for a flight that wasn't for another week as well. And it's like, oh, no, no, I want to fly today. I just booked it wrong.
2: So what did you do at that point? Did you decide to uh, get new tickets so you could fly? Or, I, I or think I you, looked uh, so
1: sad to that lady. She just corrected my ticket for me and let me go home. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, I've, I've learned to be very kind to ticket agents. Because all
2: right, I'll, I'll tell you a great story, then. All right. a quick one. All right. So I go to TechEd Israel, and I'm really excited. My first time going to TechEd Israel. This was a couple of years ago. And on my flight back... Um, so I'm sitting, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm supposed to fly out at 12 o'clock at night or something. Cause, you know, with L Al, uh, they only have flights like twice a day right. from Israel back. You know, it's a long flight. It's 18 hours. So I'm talking to my wife on Skype from the hotel in like Tel Aviv and she's like, and it's like 10 in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, they gave me this really nice room with a boardroom and I'm going to have like a meeting with a couple of folks from this Israeli bank. They're going to come in and this, that, and the other. And my wife's like, Well, where are you? I'm like, I'm in the hotel room. It's like, oh, because I, from, you know, from what I see, you're supposed to be on a plane right now. I'm like, what? I'm like, no, that's not, you know, not until 12 o'clock tonight, it's fine, or 10 o'clock tonight. It's like, oh. Well, they probably screwed up. You should check because I think they, you know, what I'm looking at, saying that you're, you know, you should be at the airport right now, and I go and look, and it turns out it was like military time, or it was, it was, yeah, it was something screwy, and 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 I was like, oh shoot, it actually is.
1: You have missed your flight.
2: So I, I managed fortunately because they've got a deal with LA, you know, that's an expensive flight, and. Um, you know, I wasn't going to be very happy going back to my management and saying, okay, we need to cop up another $5,000 yeah. for the business class. Um, but they basically were like, oh, um, you know, with LL, you can fly within, I think it's like within 24 hours. And there turned out that there was a flight that night, at, actually at 12 o'clock. So I managed to get Just on Just managed that. to squeak anyway, it out. That was a great wide me moment. And you know, just sitting there relaxing in my robe on Skype, when I realized I just it up and missed my my flight back home. Awesome. Anyway, but nobody wants to hear about that. Yeah,
1: I know. No. You know, uh, I everyone's really excited that you're on the show. Actually, they're big fans of meth out there, my friend.
2: Yeah, we've gotten quite a following, though I'm no longer on the MEF team. But regardless, that doesn't matter. Um, I mean, I think, I think MEF is doing really well so far. And I think one of the things I'm really happy about is the fact that the community kind of really took hold of it. And, you know, if you go on CodePlex, for example, and search, there's a ton of projects, even before we shipped, because we were making our code available, that were, uh, you know, that were really looking at MEF for their extensibility and you know what I think we found too which we kind of hoped would happen is now that folks see that there's this really easy solution for building in extensibility they're starting to think about wow you know like in the past I probably wouldn't have extended this because it would have been too much work but now it's so easy to do it and of course there's always a balance there right in terms of you know people might now just almost like with WPF you know people coming out and saying ooh, I've got to make my button 3D rotating and all this other stuff (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> probably a bit of that, but but we've been really really happy with it, and um, I think it's it's very exciting to see technologies like MEF making it into the platform.
1: And I remember when we were first talking about MEF, you were talking about it's it was going to be utilized heavily in Studio, and Studio is now shipped, right?
2: Yep. So it has.
1: where do we see MEF inside of Studio? Like if they, if you want to cite some examples, yeah, you don't see it now. So, um, that's the beauty. No, no. Uh,
2: the key place where it's used is the new editor. So the code editor in Visual Studio is completely extensible. Right. And the only way to extend that nowadays is through MEF. So one of the interesting things about VS is, you know, like math is a technology, or even when you look at patterns, like inversion of control and stuff like that, they work with legacy systems. And VS is very much, uh, well, I'd get myself in trouble here, and I know there's some guys in VS on it. But it is. it's got a lot of legacy code in there. Right. So when they went to say, hey, we're going to, you know, we want to have a better extensibility solution, uh, they weren't going to sell it to management to say, we have to rewrite all of VS to use it, right? Yeah. Uh, that, and, and a lot of companies are not going to be in a position to do that so there's a bunch of shimming and stuff that goes on but there's a brand new editor and that editor um is fully extensible through now so what would i want to do with editing well let's say i wanted to plug in my own syntax highlighting
3: right or
2: i wanted to plug in one really cool um editor extension that i saw was a regex uh like a, a regex helper so you type new regex and then you get a like a pop up um, that uh, you get like a smart tag, and if you click on that, you get this pop up that allows you to actually right there type in your regular expression and test it out in an editor. And they actually rehosted like the compiler within, uh, like a you know like a, the whole parser and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but uh, and I think Daniel Casalino actually and co worked on that, but it was really, really cool. And I think, you know, those are the kind of things that MEF enables. But the point here is they didn't rewrite all of VS. Right. And they did have a lot of you know, there's a lot of com based stuff and other stuff that's in VS, but they used MEF as a vehicle to surface it. Now I think in the future you'll see that they'll they'll take advantage of MEF even more. Because now what you'll get is, you know, like you'll use MEF to author some editor component. And once you're in the door then you'll access a bunch of fairly large kind of services, and you'll start to use the older legacy infrastructure for uh, you know, for accessing the things that you want to access. Right. But the beauty that Meph provides is that ability to just deploy something in the right folder, and it shows up. And VS has taken it a little bit further. They've actually done more of what Eclipse did and added in like a manifest, which Meph is very malleable, so you can extend it. So this way they had... More information and 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 that you know they don't just automatically pick up any binary unless this manifest is present, but it's the idea that you're not dealing with all the types of registration and add in stuff that you have to deal with before to extend the editor, so the editor is one big place and and um a lot of the designers and stuff that you're seeing in v s now are using math like entity frameworks designer. Um, there's a ton of designers all that are that are just getting on board with using MEF and saying, "Hey, if you want to be able to plug stuff in or extend our designer, you can do that." Um, Team Arc also, the Architect Edition of DS, is heavily using MEF in their UML designers, where all the shapes and everything and all that stuff plugs in through MEF. So, you know, now that MEF is there, there's a lot of people that are using it beyond just what. The core VS strategy has been, which is really around using it for the editor, um, and I think the project system is also one of the big places uh, where they use math.
1: Yeah, so you'd think that you into- uh, that tools like Code Rush and Resharper and Just Code would jump all over this as well.
2: Well, they are. They have to. Uh Reshopper, they're they're using MEF. They're because you, you pretty much have no choice. Like, it's not like a would you like to use MEF? It's like <laughs> if you want to do what you were doing before, you have to use MEF. Yeah, you it, need you know? to
3: be
1: in MEF. That's how so it's that's always be. a
2: double edged sword, right? Because we can show lots of numbers how like every ISV that's gonna be sending VS is using MEF. Right. You know, that in itself may not convince a lot of people that MEF is good, but but yeah, it's it's a standard part of the experience. And you know, VS has wrapped it. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that VS brings in which is not necessarily meth, though to a person who approaches meth from Visual Studio, they might think it is. And and one of the reasons why I've spent very little time talking about VS and all the stuff I've done has mostly been outside VS, whether it be like WPF or Silverlight or console based, like web services, whatever is because we wanted people to realize that in itself is actually very simple. And, you know, you don't need all this other type of infrastructure that you'll see, for example, when you go into VS, which makes sense in VS. But, you know, it's very easy for people to say, if they built only through the VS model, say, oh, I would never want to use that in my main app because it's just... Way too heavy. Right. When in actuality it's not.
1: Yeah, it's quite simple. I think the coolest thing I saw with the whole MEF model for studio was this idea, and uh, Daryl Miller just mentioned this in the IRC channel, that I could put a plugin in just by putting it in the right folder and it appears in studio without even restarting studio.
2: Yes. Um, Well, it appears in the extension manager. Right. Uh, VS does force you when you enable. I think I, I forget. I, I might mess myself up here. I think when you enable stuff, it actually does force a restart. And part of the reason for that is because it could trickle lots of changes. Right. Um, so I so it does show up in the extension manager immediately. But then if you go to enable it uh, and it wasn't enabled before, I believe it actually does force a restart. Like
1: hey, we need to restart actually here.
2: Actually does. Yeah. Yeah, it does force a restart
1: not the end of the world, but it's just interesting to see that, you know, you were talking about the simplicity of this thing and that we get some of these natural effects. I, I guess the question is, where else are we going to see MEF? I mean, studio is one thing, but it, sh- it ought to spread, shouldn't it?
2: It is already spreading. So I know of several products, and that's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and you can see some of them already, like in things, like, for example, you know, MEF shipped in Silverlight 4 as well. A lot of people don't know it's not just part of the desktop, it's in Silverlight 4. Right. And like, you know, we've got a bunch, you know, it's really interesting looking at the way the company is now, because we have things that are not, quote, products, but product teams work on them. Right. And one of the interesting things is the Microsoft Silverlight Analytics Framework, which, uh, you know, uh, which is something that recently launched. And that um, uses Meph quite heavily for allowing you to plug in different, like, analytics handlers, where, you know, he's got a generic framework, Michael Schroeder that allows me to just, like, drop in these different, like, trackers um, into my UI, and then I can hook things up where, you know, I can add, like, support for a new type of um, at a Linux engine without having to change my code. Cool. And so that, I think, is really cool. Another one, which has gotten a lot of attention recently, which is done by Vertigo, is, you know, the Silverlight Media Framework.
3: Yes, Um, of course. That's
2: also using MEF to allow you to kind of extend it and plug in different things that happen during the timeline and stuff like that. But we have seen a lot of products uh, internally that are looking now. Now that MEF is there, it's like the standard when people say, hey, we want to do extensibility. Um, And I've even had some discussions, you know, like since I joined the WCF team, which is where I am now officially. Um, And, you know, we're looking at it as well and saying, like, hey, maybe we can – leverage MEF instead of continually adding all these configuration APIs.
1: Well, you know where I'd like to see MEF show up would be Internet Explorer. We had a conversation yesterday where they're talking about just how difficult it is to build an add-in for IE compared to, say, an add-in for Firefox. So, Maybe you can go give some love to the IE team. We make IE9 have an easy add-in model.
2: That would be nice. One of the things, though, that brings up, and I think Firefox does this, is the notion of isolation. Right. And we've had a lot of customers who have asked us about that. We punted on that with Math partially because we felt we didn't have a great isolation solution in the framework. Like, we went and tried to build – we went and built one. We built Math, uh, in But it was so complicated, you know, in terms of the amount of stuff it imposed on it for people to use it that they just didn't end up using it.
1: they're not not going to use it if it's that difficult. And this is all about trying to make sure that if you're adding crashes, you don't take out your host app?
2: Exactly. Just just ask the Outlook
1: team about this, right?
2: Yep. So Meph, you know, we continually, if you go into CodePlex, we continually have people that ask us about this, and we kind of were like, look, our first foremost goal with Meph is simplicity. Right. And as soon as we bring something in that now, because you want to be able to work in this kind of distributed, uh, you know, cross-app domain fashion, if it ends up imposing the experience for everybody, whether they care about that or not, there's no way we're going to do it. Plus, we just felt like, you know, until there's a better platform answer for doing this stuff, I mean, we have app domains, but a lot of people don't feel that's ideal. Right. You know, um, then, uh, you know, we've just kind of, Stuck to our guns and said, look, there's other stuff we can work on. And we don't block you, right? Because meth is highly configurable and extensible. For example, there are folks that are using meth with meth. And if you go to a guy's blog, I'll call it out, Kent uh, Bugart, kentb.blogspot.com, He's got a blog post on MEF and math where he talks about a path, one path of many, actually, that you can integrate the two technologies. But it's, it's definitely been a big ask for us to provide that isolation. So this is
1: MEF and, and math?
2: There's math. It's math and math, M-A-F. It's a little confusing. Okay. You know, we like to add in a little bit of confusion. No, I'm, I'm a
1: little confused. That's, That's why I'm asking.
2: System.addin. <laughs> in. Okay. <laughs> System.add-in, have you heard of System.add-in? Yes. System.add-in's other name was the Managed Add-in Framework. Right, Math. And then, not to be confused with, the Managed Extensibility framework. framework. Okay. And it gets really confusing if you go on CodePlex, because on CodePlex there's one website that's the Managed Add-in and Extensibility <laughs> Framework. Um, <laughs> we won't go into that.
1: <laughs> that's, that's just mean. That's not nice at all. I know. <laughs> you know. I and, and there's a I mean, you're talking about the, the silver light uh, framework that uh Vertigo did. That's up on Coplex as well. It
2: is. Yeah, Coplex is really taking off. I mean, I think a lot of things that in the past companies would just put as like MSIs, you know, that either either Microsoft would ship something, they're really looking at Codeplex as a good vehicle for getting stuff out there that's, you know I think cheaper um, provides a richer community interaction gives people a chance to vote um, good visibility I think it's I think it's uh, it's really starting to have this catalytic effect
1: the uh, of course you you talk about the simplicity model around MEF and keeping it very simple which I know the add-in people appreciate but the protected model has got to be all about the, the host app. Because if you you know if you're selling a host application and the Studio is part of this problem right, somebody puts in an add-in with MEF that can crash Studio. It's Studio that gets the tech support call, not the add-in.
2: Yeah, Studio. I forget what they. I don't know if Studio Studio. I believe actually does do some type of uh, isolation, but I'm not 100 percent positive. Or at least they were looking to do that in the future. But yes, that is true. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Uh, that's a risk that you take, but you know. Same kind of thing can happen with Eclipse and other. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it can happen, right? Sure. But, but, it would, but it would be nice. Although Java does have some things that make isolation, you know, with some of the class loaders and stuff it has, it, it does have some interesting things it can do that.
1: Well, and uh, we've seen part, some of these isolation you know, techniques, which not only impair the number of add ins, but don't seem to actually achieve the goal of keeping the host platform stable. That you still have an add in, even though it's running in isolation, that could somehow make that host app go at least hang, if not just flat out die.
2: Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough problem.
1: So um,
2: and I think it's one that ultimately we do need, you know, would be great for us in the platform to have a better um a better solution for. Um we just you know, we just don't have one yet. The other thing is, though, that people survive, though, right? Like, the the thing is, I think that's part of it, too. Like, people say, well, we must have this, right? But we've been dealing with this in .NET forever, yeah. and life goes on.
1: Yeah, somehow we get by anyway.
2: And some do do the separate app domain. I mean, it's not to say that, but, but I think a large majority don't. Yeah. Because it's just so much work.
4: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And, of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com JustMock. And, hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik.
1: So, Clemens Vassar has popped into the IRC channel and said, isn't the managed prefix kind of a gratuitous throwaway in making these three-letter acronyms? MEF and MAF?
2: Yeah, I don't like, you know, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I, I think we, like, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We don't do great with our acronyms. I'm glad it's not the Windows Extensibility Foundation. The WEF? Uh, the Windows, uh, yeah, I'm glad it's not the web. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, the other option there would be the awesome Extel and Framework.
2: Yeah, we, we went back and forth on some of the naming. You know, the problem with it, too, is by the time I joined the team, the name was already out there. And, you know, you build Mindshare, and it's hard to kind of change it. I always thought the managed thing was actually stupid. I, I thought it literally has no value whatsoever, <laughs> right? In .NET, obviously, yeah. it's managed.
1: We've got a caller. Who's our caller?
2: Hello, this is Michael Perry. How
5: you doing?
1: Hi, Michael. Good to talk to you. You got a question for Glenn? Michael.
5: Yes. Yeah. Actually, I do. Um, Excuse me. We've got a a need at uh, at work that uh, that we've ended up satisfying ourselves, but uh, hopefully there's going to be a Microsoft solution for this. And basically, um, you know, in IAS you can host an application that is a service that somebody can call, and so it reacts when, when it gets a call. And in BizTalk, you can host a long-running, uh, service, if you will, but right. it's not something that gets called. It's, it's, just, it's always running. And, uh, we needed something that hosts, um these services that, uh, that keep running, but they're not the same kind of long-running thing that, uh, that BizTalk does. It's just, you know, I need a thread and I need to do some work on it. And, uh, so we, we solved this by creating a,
3: <clears throat>
5: a Windows service. And using Castle so that we can configure what our activities are. Sure.
2: But, mm-hmm. uh, Castle, you use like I startable and stuff like that, or did you, did you use any of the interfaces in Castle for? Because Castle has a facility, yeah, has a mechanism for allowing you to just start up services.
5: Uh, actually, no, we didn't do that. We created our own interface called IActivity, and it's okay. got a method called Run, and so you just it, the host creates a thread, calls Run, and then it's going gotcha. to call interrupt whenever it wants the activity to stop um but uh uh so yeah we we found that there was a real deployment problem with castle because it's an i o c. container and not an extensibility framework and uh and so whenever you wanted to deploy... what what, what in
2: particular were the problems that you found
5: yeah if you um if you want to deploy a brand new activity you'd have to go into your um your castle configuration and edit the x m. l. and sort of merge the x m l uh of those activities together yep so um so, yeah, we're planning on uh, switching over to MEF for that, but uh, um, I was hoping that you could tell me, oh, there's an even better solution, just use Microsoft, yada, 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 and you don't have to write
2: your own uh, host. Well, I mean, meth, what Meth will do for you is make it really easy to discover those new things that you want to add, where you just simply drop them into a folder, for example, and they show up. Right. Um, so you can get rid of the needing to write the XML, um, potentially. Um, now, sometimes when you're using like Castle Windsor and you're configuring components, you also have other types of information that you're putting in. Um, now, Met has a facility called metadata that allows you to provide a little bit of extra information. Now, primarily, we use that for self-description. For, uh, but but you could come up with your own mechanism for how you provide that additional information. But I think in principle. If you want to have a system where I can just drop things in a folder and the system reacts, an adaptive system, and I don't have to explicitly configure it, um, then METH might be a good choice for you. Now, you'll have to do something similar to what you did there. You'll need, you know, METH discovers things through contracts. So if you want to have something that's like a startable equivalent or well, you're actionable, you know, you could use your existing interfaces that you've created. And then what you'll do with METH is, you know, METH uses catalogs to identify what's available. And you have various different types of catalogs, including you can create your own, but the one the one that many people use is directory catalog. Um, you might want to write your own if you're wanting to have more control as as in saying, well, just because you drop something in my directory doesn't mean I'm going to pick it up. Um, because I want to look at the assembly or expect some key or something like that. But writing catalogs like that in MEF are relatively easy because you can compose a lot of our existing lower-level ones, but anyway, um, in principle, you know, using Map to discover those plugins and then starting them up on a background thread or something. I mean, you'll write the logic that will start those up on a background thread, but you could definitely use MEP as a mechanism for, you know, discovery. That's what it does great.
5: Yeah, actually, um, yeah. There's there's another aspect to that, and that's the, the governance. Uh, i had asked. Uh, um, Michelle Aru uh, about that uh, earlier in the in this series and um, so the idea that uh, that I can configure each of these activities um, in order to you know they have to have their own um, their own settings they have to have their own connection string they have to talk to other services and uh, sure and so if I just if I drop just the the components I mean that's the code but um, is there a good solution for
2: uh, the configuration to be sent to Netflix. So, if you go on my blog, slash gblock and, and Richard, if you keep track, I can send links to anything that I mentioned here. But one of the links, one of the, I have a, a set of posts on configuration and mess. So, what you would likely do is there's a couple of different ways you could do it. One is you can use metadata on your component to uh, metadata is a way of Self-describing your components with additional information. So you could put like a name. Let's just use name as an example for your component. And then what you could do is have a different mechanism where you allow a configuration file, for example, or a database, where you can associate that name with whatever settings that you want. And then because Mesh does injection, it can the component when it's being built up um, can can ask using a declarative dependency, it can can specify and say, give me this configuration service. That's what this blog post will do. You search for configuration on my blog that I can then use to get to the actual settings that I need. So it's totally doable. There's probably about five different ways to do it. But the one that's probably most common is to have like a configuration service with a known contract um, and then, you know, just have the, um, Component that needs to be configured pulls in that information as a dependency, either a property or a. We call them imports: a property import or a uh, constructor parameter import, and then it can access all the information um, that it you know that it needs. That would solve our problem. Yes.
4: This is uh, Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks Live Weekend. I have been uh, away. Yeah, you had a busy
1: half hour there, my friend?
4: Yes, I did. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Carl.
2: You know, I guess this means I'm going to get heckled now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> what, Richard hasn't been heckling you? He
4: should have been, uh, you know. No, Um, uh, we, our editing machine decided to go tits up. Just like that? Just like that. Nice. So, if you'll pardon the expression.
2: No problems. Well, it's, good to, it's good to talk to you, man. It's been a while.
4: It has been a while, but you know how I fixed the computer? I took out the boot drive, put in a 128 gig SSD, and started reinstalling Windows. Because you nice. know that it was it was running on an ancient hard drive that had been upgraded from this to that to this to that, and it just had enough.
1: Wow!
2: That reminds me of my days of dealing with ghosts. You remember Ghost? I League? remember oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. absolutely.
2: That's an awesome. That was, that, was, that was awesome back in the
1: day, so I can only imagine how it is now. I'm an Acronis fan now.
4: Uh, yeah, I was going to use Acronis to move partitions around, but then it was just like, you know, when a program that should run perfectly fine gives you, uh, tells you you must have administrator access to the file in order to run it, and you're an administrator? Yes.
1: Not a good sign. Time
4: to change. Not at all. Like, I'm not yeah. looking forward to taking ownership of 4,000 files. Yeah. Uh, Bill Simser says he's listening to Glenn Block talking about how to mephersize your application on DNR Live. <laughs>
1: We've, uh, we The whole first half of this conversation has all been meph, but I have to point out that the very first thing Glenn said was, I'm not with the meph team anymore.
3: Oh, wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> so what are,
1: yeah,
2: what are you doing now? What are you doing I am working on REST and HTTP over in uh, WCF land. Probably something closer to Richard's heart.
1: No, I was just thinking, yeah, REST over HTTP as opposed to what? REST over
3: mail? Oh
2: no, no. I said REST and HTTP, <laughs> meaning like you know HTTP. You know, what is our offering a really solid experience for building, exposing resources and things over HTTP? And you know, HTTP itself. I mean, REST is a style. Yes. Right that uh, you can use HTTP without necessarily adhering to the principles of rest, even though many argue that HTTP leads you down a restful path. And so our first focus is really on, you know, what is the experience for leveraging HTTP, you know, providing a really natural way for doing that. And second, you know, if you are uh, an adherent to, you know, uh, a restful style, Making it so that the platform makes it really easy to do that and doesn't stand in your way. Yeah,
1: isn't the answer to this from Microsoft OData?
2: Well, OData, that's a good, you know, I, I said to my, I was always going to tweet, wonder what controversy I'll get into. <laughs> OData is a very specific format that is RESTful, right? So um, it definitely is RESTful and it allows you to do, uh, to map against your verb different. Uh, you know, and it's, it's it's really about data exchange, though. Though so it does do other things, but you have to be talking in OData, right? You you you're, you're constrained by whatever constraints OData sets for you. Um, and like, let's say you want to talk to systems that aren't talking OData, right? Right. Well, you can either say, well, I'm not going to talk to those systems, or, um, you know, you can uh, you can look at really leveraging HTTP um for, for talking to those systems. And I think that OData, you know, OData is built off of the Atom type, um, protocol, um, at, and it's a feed-based protocol, and that's great for a lot of things, but it doesn't solve all problems. Um, so we could take an option of saying, well, you know, that's what we have, and that's the way it's gonna be. And, and that's not the direction we've taken anyway, because if you look at WCF from 3.5 on, we introduced this notion of web, of 8 billion, you know, web HTTP which was a way to kind of take your services and tailor them so they look and act like more RESTful-type services. So I think it's really about, it's interesting, because people say, when I talk with Alex James, you know, he says, well, OData is about interoperability. Well, I say REST is about interoperability, too, but of a different sort, right? Like OData is like a uh, a bunch of different systems have agreed to play by a specific set of rules so they can interoperate with one another. And, um, you know, using pure HTTP is about saying, hey, I can talk to anybody as long as they go over HTTP. Hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Well, and, and, you know, again, you open this with the whole, you know, OData is RESTful, even if it doesn't necessarily follow it the is. REST specification. It
2: is, because it is. It absolutely is. I mean, you know, just like, Soap is over HTTP, right? You can transmit SOAP over HTTP, but you're not leveraging the power of HTTP. You're using one verb primarily.
4: You could send it over SOAP over SMTP if you wanted.
2: Sure, because SOAP is itself its own encapsulated protocol. So when people are building systems for HTTP, they're saying, hey, I want to fully leverage HTTP and the caching and the verbs and content negotiation and hypermedia. These are all things people will talk about in the kind of... Restful community, right. and they're saying, "Hey, you know, let me fully leverage that. Don't impose any unnecessary rules above what the spec tells me I can do." Right, and that's where I think the difference really comes in, you know. And to use those data today, like if you're going to use Astoria, you have to have a data model. Yep. Right, because it's it's very much bound, you know, uses like the EMX model. Um, but with REST, I can just aggregate any systems I want to, as long as they're willing to abide by HTTP. So, I mean, the way I think I look at it is, you know, like we have this whole set of products right now that are coming out that actually talk over HTTP, right? There's SOAP. Uh, there's web services, which can traditionally just be like a SOAP packet going over post.
1: Right, As mess. There's
2: um, Odata and Astoria, which lets you fully leverage the verbs more for, like, a data exchange entities that I want to exchange data. And aren't we calling uh, the, Astoria
1: uh, WCF data services now?
2: Yes, 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 yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yes, WCF Details. data services. And then there's, like, RIA services, right? And RIA services, people that are using RIA services con- conventionally haven't really cared about whether or not, they, you know, they, they haven't cared about getting access to the HTTP protocol, they've said, hey, I just want to build systems that are distributed without having to worry about a lot of the pains. Um, and, and, you know, and some people feel that soap brings a certain amount of pain. Um, soap so equals pain? There's this continuum.
4: Only if you have a rash. Nice. we got to come up with uh, technology uh, that where the acronym is rash. A, <laughs> and the cure is soap.
2: <laughs> I don't want to work on that technology. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Bad enough I was a meth dealer. I can't imagine what I would be if I was working on technology called (laughs) RAS.
4: Got you to laugh, though. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at Datadynamics.com. Hey, Matt Van Horn is uh, is joining us via Skype. Hi, Matt. You have a question for Glenn?
6: Yeah, hi. Can you hear me okay? Sure. Yeah, okay, perfect. Okay, great. Hi, Glenn. Um... So Hi, I wanted to do, wanted to know a little about um, uh, REST and Windows uh, Windows Phone Seven. More specific, specifically, um, why there doesn't seem to be uh, like um, like the sorry the push the push notifications. Um, you seem to have to use like um, a straight uh, web client with that. I, I don't know if you know anything about that. If not, just <laughs> let me know. You're talking about but, uh, you're talking
2: about using WCF duplex type model. yeah, yeah essentially. Yeah, I can't – I mean, part of the thing right now is, you know, Windows Phone 7 is Silverlight, but it doesn't have everything that, like, Silverlight 4 has. Right. Like, there's a subset. Um, so I think, you know, people see and they think, oh, everything I can do in Silverlight 4. I mean, for example, you can't use math on Windows Phone <laughs> because <laughs> because it's just not – it's not available, you can't admit, And I I did a port, actually. But anyway, that's a completely side note. We're not talking about meth here. But um, I can... What I can do is I can contact the person that I know who's responsible for our WCF stuff and Solarlight and you can share your scenarios. But at this point, um, I... I can't speak on exactly what's in Windows Phone, not because it's confidential, because I just don't know, but I can easily imagine that uh, based on the fact that I know it's a subset, there's a bunch of stuff that's not there. And probably one way is to go to the you know Windows Phone blogs and talk about, you know, or Silverlight team blogs and post and say, hey, you know, or go to, um, what do you call it, Connect, and say, hey, I really need this. And then other people can vote on it. But I can't say I have no insight into the decision, um, and even whether or not what you're asking for is there or not there. But I, I, but I can say that over time, more and more will appear in the phone. I know that's the strategy as far as silverlight goes.
6: Okay, great, great. And uh, I, I know you're uh, you're off the MEF team, but uh, I, uh, I'm a big big MEF fan. I, I had a had a, a MEF question for you. Sure. Um, yeah. So it. It's it's along the lines of um, with uh, composition containers. Yeah. Um, in in meth, um, it it seems I'm not not exactly clear on exactly how the um, composition containers are accessed by um, when when you actually call satis, uh, satisfy imports because um, it seems you're
2: talking about you're talking about in Silverlight, correct?
6: Yeah, yeah, in Silverlight okay. specifically.
2: Okay. Okay. So, so, do you want to just understand what that is, or it is a specific question other than that?
6: Yeah, I mean it doesn't seem as if there's the uh well I well I you know I haven't really discovered it yet but um so that there's like a way to isolate the container that you're actually using so that you could have like multiple container I I mean it seems like there is a way it's just I can't seem how to make it not explode when I try to do it. So, <laughs> so.
2: Satisfying imports, you know, when we when we went and built MAP for Silverlight, we wanted to make the programming model simpler. We felt that, you know, like what we would find is when we talk to people about using MAP, we have to teach them a whole bunch of things to just get going, right? Not huge, but enough. We have to understand what catalogs are. You have to understand what the container is. And then you see, like, you go to the container in IntelliSense and you see, like, 40-something different methods. Um, yeah. So we were trying to think about, like, how can we make that simpler? But we also wanted to think about how can we have third parties be able to rely on the fact that NEP is always present, right? That was a key goal. Like, if I'm building some type of third-party control that is extensible, I don't want to have to say to the person who drops this control in their UI, hey, if you didn't write this startup code that initializes NEP, it's just going to blow up. Nice. So we, we came with this idea of a default composition model, where by default in Silverlight, one of the really nice things, we offer this API called Satisfying Imports. The first time you call it, we will conventionally go and grab all of the assemblies in the current ZAP, create a container, and we will um, put all those assemblies into a catalog in that container, and then we will satisfy the imports on the instance of the thing that was passed in, which could be the Silverlight application or a control Et cetera, like if you had to control with view model or, or anything. That container, again, by default, we shield it. We shield it deliberately because one of the other things we didn't like about, uh, you know, and the desktop was we were encouraging people to depend on the container directly. And that's an anti-pattern. Like, it, it causes a lot of service locator-ish type code to appear throughout your code base, which is very hard to analyze. It's almost impossible to analyze. And now, has an analytics engine that can predetermine whether or not things are missing or not because it finds everything in declarative fashion because, you know, everything's been expressed. But as soon as you do, like, lots of polls in code, we, we're out of the loop there. We have no way of helping you um, mm-hmm. and ensuring stability of systems, which is, it, it, it's not so much as about helping you, it's about ensuring that if you're in a system that you're going to operate correctly no matter what. Um, and so that's that's why we did that. But, We let you access that container. You can override. There is a container under the hood, like I mentioned. We have a static method called initialize on a class called composition host. And if you call that class, you can pass that any container that you want. So if you wanted to do a hierarchy of containers, what you would have to do is something a little bit further. You could, for example, derive from composition container and override a method called core, which is built into our container, um, to then have some type of strategy to route you to a different container. It would probably need some state because it wouldn't have access to the instance, but it is doable um, using, using the model I just described. You can also, if you want to just use our existing container, create something that's called an export provider, and if you look on my blog, you can see a bit about that, And using an export provider, you could write a strategy within that export provider that routes it to other export providers or other containers. Container actually is an export provider. So in short, what I'm trying to say is, if you want to do anything with hierarchy of containers using Composition Initializer, you need to override the container uh, using that initialize method I told you about, Mm -hmm. Um, and you'll need to do some customization. Now, now you're getting to a different bigger question around scoping. And scoping has been a huge thing that we've been worried about. When we went and did Composition Initializer, we said, oh, we're going to have a single container. It's going to be really easy to get going if you're in this set of scenarios. Once you get into hierarchical containers, you really have to ask yourself, is Composition Initializer even the right thing to use? Um, And it may be, uh, but you need to do a bit more work on it. But I do know that the MES team is really focused in the next version and I'm providing a scoping solution for being able to say like these things live in this container these things live in this container what's your particular scenario though
1: so what is the example or what's the particular scenario you're working with
6: well that uh, unfortunately that particular scenario is uh, under an NDA uh, so you I go. can't can't talk about it but uh, there's some some very interesting uh, stuff that's going on under there and I'm just trying to wrap my head around some of some of that stuff and and try to implement something kind of kind of uh, hokey that will solve the uh the, the issue I'm running well, into.
1: But. We always think hokey when we think meth, don't we?
6: No, actually oh, I, I think <laughs> the opposite. I mean meth is actually in my opinion, meth is for the majority of what you're gonna do with it, very, very straightforward and and, and quite quite well done. I mean that's that's why uh that's why I, I posted in the, the the tweet all hail Glenn Block from all, who all exports and imports uh come. <laughs> I awesome.
2: missed that one, <laughs> but I will, I will check but, uh, it. But I mean, it, cool. it
6: really is a well done system, and I, I'm a big fan. And I, I've used used Meth. I've, I've put it, put together a couple blog posts about it, and I really do do like it. And uh, so, you know,
2: so so job. I would say that Meth supports hierarchical. Like, if you're trying to do hierarchical stuff, Meth definitely supports hierarchical containers. Um, yeah. The last thing, you know, you might find more success if you say in these scenarios maybe composition initialized is not the best thing to use, although I've given you an idea of how you could do it. But I think you'll find, like, just arranging containers in a hierarchy is something Nest supports very naturally. Um, hmm. And then, you know, resolving off the child and having it find, you know, walk up the tree, etc. That If that's your scenario, you can definitely do that. The, the challenge with the composition initializer is because you're passing an instance um, that, you know, the, you, you need to get some context elsewhere to be able to figure out where to service that request. Does that make sense?
6: Yeah, it does, actually. Thank thank you.
2: But you can email me, too. I'm happy to follow up with you offline more because, obviously, this is the kind of one that you can't really answer in three minutes. So I did actually try. <laughs>
1: yeah, but I think it ran closer That's to question. 10, but I'm okay with that. 10,
2: okay. Uh, I, and and I for apologize. Three, for, I ended up
1: at ten. Not to worry. I That's why we for did this. You talk about it. <laughs> well, thanks so awesome. much for your call.
6: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Have, and I'm loving the show. Thanks.
1: I'm glad you like it. We're having a good time doing it.
6: Yep. All right. Bye bye.
1: Hey Glenn, there's a conversation going on inside the IRC channel, sort of debating around uh, this extent the the project you're working on around rest. And whether it's yep. part of OData or an extension to OData. And that's led us into this whole conversation about the complexities of WCF and how it seems that WCF has gobbled up all of these data communication methods.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think it has been our strategy for data communication. So one of the reasons why am I here, why am I working on this particular position, yes. you know, like we've... I think in the past, our strategy has really been to abstract away all the communication details, right? right. That's been the strategy. Yeah, just and yeah, go take a look
1: at DCOM, right? Extract e- away the yeah, <laughs> right. extract away the communications.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think there's a pro and a con to that, yes. right? I mean, I think there are pros to it. But I think for a lot of people that are building systems that don't necessarily need those benefits, it's like a cost on paying no matter what. Right. And so with HTTP, a lot of people, you know, and people have said that about SOAP in general. Yep. Right? They said, like, if I need WS star, then SOAP is great. But if I don't, I'm paying this continual tax of everything has to be formatted in this very specific way, Mm -hmm. which means that any system, whether it's a mobile phone or anything else, needs to talk that language. To be able to play, right, and that and that's an expensive, you know, that's costly in a lot of different ways. So we started, as I mentioned, with the WCF Web HTTP stuff to say, oh well, now you can work over HTTP. You don't have to work over SOAP. But it was still in that same model. Right. So what I'm exploring, and I will say exploring here, I'm gonna be non-committal at this point. Mm-hmm. But my mission for coming here is to say, like, okay, let's say we look at HTTP and say instead of abstracting it, you want to work in HTTP. Like you chose it because it's light and it offers a lot of power if you work with it directly. So how can we make it easy for you to work with it directly? And I think we've made a lot of progress on that with the web HTTP stuff, but I think we could go further. And we've seen some of that with some work we did intermediary called the REST Starter Kit. There were a lot of people that were really happy that we shift this like RESTful client and this HTTP client that lets you fully access all the things HTTP has to offer. Right. And I think it's not well understood exactly what that is. Like, people think about HTTP, they think about either soap, they think about uh, pox, like just pass some objects over the wire, being serialized, or they think about HTML. And what I've learned, and I'm a noob to this space, but I've now been in it maybe about six weeks, eight weeks, trying to, like 24 hours a day, trying to get my head around sure. it, talking with a lot of community, there's some real benefits to natively leveraging HTTP in terms of scalability of your applications and maintainability. Like, what, if your apps can move to be hypermedia driven, for example, right. um, which is the way your browser works, but you don't think about it in the context of applications. Like, you know, think about workflow, not workflow big W, but small W, where you can draw, you know, you can use hypermedia, um, which is the idea of links to drive actually how your application works, um, as opposed to just driving, like, UI navigation. And, And there's a lot of things you can leverage from HTTP in terms of scalability with caching. Like, for example, if you stick to the rules and get is an item potent operation, it means that, you know, servers can automatically cache get requests right? They know what to do if you're doing a get. Yeah. But if you use get in a way that's not idempotent, you can't gain any of those benefits, right? And there's a lot of people that have built very simple systems where they'll do a get, but it actually results in a change somewhere and then you lose a lot of those benefits. So I think what I'm looking at, I agree that I'm the first to say that I do believe that WCF is very complex. Right. Um, I never wanted to use it in the past. Right. That's how bad it was for me. But um you know, but what I see is we're looking now to simplify and say, Hey, if you want to work with HTTP, let's give you a model that works well for HTTP. And let's think about things like testability, let's think about keeping it very lightweight. Uh, let's think about not requiring oodles of configuration. These are all things that my team is focused on right now.
1: Well, and it's exciting to me that a MEF head, somebody who is all about simplicity, is dancing around the area of communications at WCF, which has, let's face it, just not been about simplicity.
2: You know, that was the attraction. I mean, the other big attraction for me coming to the team is to drive community involvement in what we do. Right. There's a bunch of people that I can tell you. Like, since I joined, I haven't even done a blog post yet that said that I've joined the team. But I've talked to tons of people already, told them what we're up to, and we're brainstorming. And, you know, I'm, what's interesting for me in this role is I'm not just going to the .NET community. Like, I'm looking, you know, there's a lot of folks that care about HTTP in the, in the Ruby world, in the Java world. I'm, I'm communicating with and, you know, really trying to become friends with a lot of the folks that are out there that have built solutions in Ruby, in Java, and saying, hey, you know, what have you learned? How can we build this in a way that makes it really natural and something that you guys would stand behind, even if you're not using it? Right. So you would say, yeah, that's not a bastardized, you know, M dollar sign tainted version <laughs> of HTTP. Uh, but it's one that actually meets the needs. And I think the only way to do that is to get out there. And we're also looking to hopefully get on CodePlex and do this in a very open way, the stuff that we're building going forward. So I'm really excited about it.
1: Well, Glenn, it was great talking to you. I'm afraid to tell you the hour's already gone. Yeah, I'm not surprised. We're feel like we're just getting rolling, my friend. We could probably take a few more calls Fantastic and just keep on going. But uh, I've got another guest coming up in a few minutes, and it's Ethan Weiner, which should be really an interesting conversation. And, Amazing. As opposed to this, well, this one.
2: Great
1: idea. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. We're having a lot of fun doing it. It's a ton of work, but it's been very rewarding, and it's been great talking to you, Glenn. So thanks so much for coming on.
2: All right. Bye-bye.
4: online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got by the FCC. Yes, Life
3: is hard.